Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Chris Verone joins us, head of technical analysis at Strategus Research Partners. Chris, great to speak with you. Great to be here. Give us first the historical perspective here. We have watched the market since, watched the market especially closely here since the, the presidential uh, election. How does it fit into to history, the kind of rally that we've seen? Well, actually, it's not that extraordinary. Mm. If you look at 4Q returns thus far, they're about average for what you would expect this time of year. So I would be hard-pressed to call the market terribly extended at this point by our work. Uh, it just doesn't look it. When you look at, at correlations, what do you see uh, at this point? Well, what we see is dispersion. Uh, we see correlations among uh, stocks in the S&P right now, the lowest they've been uh, in about 10 years. So your stock picking matters. Now, what we've learned historically is when correlations are moving lower, it's often consistent with a credit environment that is supportive. It's also consistent typically with a market that's going up, not a market that's going down. So lower correlations to us uh, reflect normalcy. A line stood out to me in your most recent note. You said the election's been the first macro event in 18 months where correlations have, have actually declined. What's at it, what's it play there? Yeah, well, if we look at the last 18 months of price history, we had a number of macro events. We had the China devaluation uh, in August of 2015. We saw correlation spike when oil was at 26. We saw correlation spike around Brexit, uh, the same thing. That tells us that investors were not distinguishing among stocks. They were not discriminating among stocks. They were treating them as an asset class. Uh, it seems like today uh, investors are treating individual names on their own individual merit. Uh, that is a healthier framework. It's often one that is consistent with lower volatility as well. So we welcome the change. I also think it's good news uh, for active here uh, in the active versus passive debate, given that dispersion has widened and correlations have come in. We'll dig into some of those, uh, those companies here in a moment. But when you look at, uh, let's say, the financial sector, mm -hmm. the enthusiasm that, that we've seen there, there's the enthusiasm. How about the technicals? What's that saying about the financial sector? Well, what point? I think is a little bit ironic about the enthusiasm, if you look at the sell side, uh, the bank group has the second fewest number of buy ratings among sell side analysts compared to any other group. So I would hardly call the sell side um, overwhelmingly enthusiastic. Uh, the number of downgrades to upgrades since the election uh, has really been staggering for the group, and that's almost hard to believe. When I look at the group, um, I think the most important important chart of 2016 has been the breakout in J.P. Morgan. This is a stock that went nowhere for 17 years. It peaked in March uh, of 2000. It was in purgatory for almost two decades. The move through 65, the move to 80, uh, I think is a game changer. I think it's the most important chart of 2016. Is there is there room to run here yet? In other words, we've seen such advancement in the, in the sector. Uh, is it oversold at this point? Uh, I don't think it's remotely done in the yeah. context of the longer-term story. Um, this is a regime change to us. These are stocks that you could not own, not just for the last six or seven years, but really for the last 10 or 12 years. What we've seen historically is when a sector stays out of favor for that 10 to 12-year period, 
um, the next number of years tend to be quite good. We saw it with tech. Uh, tech was out of favor from 2002, uh, really up to 2010. Uh, we, we certainly saw it with healthcare uh, up through about 2009, and we've seen it with banks the last 10 to 12 years. We think this is the early innings of a new secular bull market in bank stocks, and we just want to be there. There is a bellwetherness to uh, to BlackRock. You've got a chart of that in, in your most recent note. What's that telling you right now when you look at BlackRock in particular? Yeah, you know, I've always looked to BlackRock as a barometer for the broader market. It's almost a leverage play on stocks. Uh, when BlackRock is going up, the S&P tends to be going up. And conversely, when BlackRock is going down, the return environment tends to be more challenging. So BlackRock is another stock where it's really spent the last 24 months uh, not making anyone any money. And the market really didn't make anyone any money for the last 24 months. So we welcome the breakout there uh, over the last several weeks. And I think importantly, I welcome the breakout in the relative sense as well. I am getting paid to own this stock relative to something else. That is the other big change for financials. They've become relative plays for the first time in a decade. We're talking with Chris Ferrone, head of technical analysis at Strategas Research Partners. Let's pivot to energy now. Uh, if we could, we see oil a bit softer uh, sure. this morning. We had seen uh, some, some some higher numbers earlier in the week. What are you seeing when you look at the energy sector, when you look at oil in particular right now? Frankly, I think it's the most difficult on the street right now. Uh, as a chartist, it's not a bad picture. Uh, and I could see it grinding towards 60 uh, over the next number of months. But what tempers my enthusiasm is the history. And when I say the history, I mean, let's remember, we're only a year removed from a 70% decline in oil. And when we've seen that in in the past, the next number of years have looked a lot like a big trading range where you get some pretty vicious rallies and some pretty vicious declines. Now, that's certainly been the case this year. We doubled off the low, but along the way, we also had another 30% decline in the price of crude. So I think in the context of uh, how much volatility are you assuming to be long crude, that may be a bit higher than you're comfortable with. So I think mean reversion is still the name of the game when it comes to oil here, not unlike how crude behaved coming out of the 85-86 bear market, where really the next decade was characterized by some pretty vicious trading ranges. So yes, we can grind towards 60. I would temper my I, I would temper my return uh, enthusiasm much above that. What, what, it's part of the the the, uh, the dumb question here, but what what is sentiment when you're doing technical? analysis. What, what, is, what is sentiment exactly and what's it telling you right yeah, now? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And <laughs> I, I uh, often think it's a little misinterpreted. I think it's used too often, number one. But we like to think of sentiment in one of two ways. Uh, number one, there is the data that tells us what people say they're doing with their money. And then secondly, there is the data that tells us what people actually are doing with their money. So surveys versus positioning. And we always put a greater emphasis on the latter. And I think often there can be a dichotomy between what people are saying they're doing and what people are actually doing. I think we see that right now in the equity market. When I travel around and I talk to clients, there is certainly uh, a return to animal spirits here. There is certainly, uh, I think, some sense that people are talking like they're more bullish. But for us, it really hasn't shown up yet to any great extent in positioning. The street is actually still running net short S&P futures right now, mm. if you can imagine that. Now, some of that is hedging, but by and large, I don't think that's reflective of a very euphoric, um, of a very euphoric environment uh, at the moment. We were talking about correlation a moment ago. Are those two things often correlated, or does one lead the other? In other words, does sentiment lead positioning usually? You know, typically, um, it can actually be the other way around. Uh -huh. And you know, what's been 
I think the most surprising part, um, really, of my, all my conversations the last four or five weeks uh, with investors really around the world is, um, I think there's been this tendency to look to November 8th or November 9th as just the game-changing week uh, of the year. I disagree to some extent. I, I think this market really started to change over the course of the summer. Um, leadership began to change before bond yields started to go up. We saw financials start to improve by July. We saw industrial leadership all year. So in context of sentiment, I have often found it trails actual price action. I think there's a tendency in our business to feel uncomfortable with an investment idea unless you have a story to go along with it. And we actually take the other approach in our work. Uh, we think the story will follow. We don't want to ignore price action. That, to us, is always more important than sentiment. Uh, when you look at, at, at sentiment and the risks that, that that poses for the new year, what are you seeing? Well, I think at some point um, there's going to be a, a, a story to tell in the first quarter where perhaps sentiment is getting a little bit too aggressive. Now, it's hard enough to forecast price. It's even harder to forecast sentiment. So we'll let that develop uh, over the course of January and February. It's something to be on guard for uh, as we move later into the first quarter, particularly when the seasonal backdrop gets a little bit more supportive uh, later in the spring. All right, Chris Ferrand, stay with us if you would. That's Chris Ferrand, their head of technical analysis at Strategus Research partners joining us here in New York. Tom and I are at the Power Breakfast at the Pier Hotel. Ellen's out there with Morgan Stanley. Uh, I mentioned all the economic data, rattled it off here a moment ago. What are you looking forward to most this morning? What's going to tell us the, the most about the state of the U.S. economy? Durable goods, GDP? Weekly well, I think G- what's, what's the focus for you this morning? You know, GDP, it's a revised number, right? We're already looking ahead toward the what the revision. fourth quarter is tracking. Fourth quarter is tracking not that great, right? And so that's what I'm more focused on rather than how close to 3% did we grow in the third quarter. Um, durable goods, I don't think any data there is going to turn around uh, the trend until we get well into what might be delivered from Trump next year sure. if, if corporates decide to change their behavior. Um, it's just not been a good trajectory for business investment. So really it comes down to that high frequency data of mm-hmm. weekly jobless claims. You know, when do we start and do we start seeing layoffs rise? I mean, they're at extraordinarily low levels. Um, and, you know, how much lower can they go if, say, Trump's policies kick off another wave of, of hiring. I mean, this is what the Fed is worried about. We've already got a tightish labor market. Um, and so watching those jobless claims uh, are very important. Are we able to actually push them even lower, below mm. record historical lows? Uh, or do they start to rise? You, uh, you beg the question there, uh, until we get Donald Trump in office, there is the prospect of, the promise of so much change here. How much do the data like the data we're going to get today mean in light of that? Uh, you know, things could change so radically, it seems. Well, I think that that's, that's one thing that, that worries me. Now, economists are the dismal scientists, yeah. so Always. I have yeah. to inject some sort of, you know, dismal comments here. We already had the Nickelback reference. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I might, I might take it even darker. Um, no, but what worries me is that, um, you know, we, we are, markets are trading like it's a new day. Um, and if that new day doesn't come, what are we stuck with? We've been on a slowing trajectory for the economy. Um, you know, wage growth has not picked up meaningfully. Real disposable income uh, on the household side is slowing uh, pretty noticeably. Um, and that's the world that you're left with. Business investment has been declining. That's the world you're left with if that new day doesn't come. 
Um, and so it worries me how willing, how patient will markets be in waiting for that new day to come. When you're forecasting out, and again, we've heard so much about what could happen here, what could contribute most to growth? Is it tax reform? Is it a repatriation holiday? Is it changes to regulation? And sort of gaming that out, what do you see as having potentially the most influence on, on the health of the U.S. economy? Well, corporate tax reform, if it's done in a way that incentivizes businesses to uh, invest, put more capex in place. Um, personal income tax reform, uh, if it's uh, uh, at the very least more fair and balanced, but at least if there's enough targeted toward the lower income groups because they do spend mm -hmm. more of those tax dollars, you know, those are the things that get the bigger impact. Um, the, the unknown here, of course, is on trade policy. Um, and what I find when I talk to investors is that many of them are cherry-picking Trump's policies um, uh, to fit into whatever desired outcome they want for the economy. And, and so many uh, are focused on the positives from tax reform and not the possible negatives from an unknown trade policy. Uh, and so with so many unknowns, you know, we do our best. Uh, to forecast what the economy might look like under Trump, but know that those forecasts have to be nimble, and it's a it's a moving timeline. It is the power breakfast at the Pier Hotel. David Gurr and I really love to attend here on Fifth Avenue. It is, of course, a storied uh, hotel, part of the Taj Group, and uh, they do it right. It is it is a quieter breakfast, which is very cool. We can be quiet, heard. Put it out on Twitter. They have the, difficulty ignoring us. Which no, but every it. table's taken, and even with every table taken, it's still quiet. What I would note is a coffee is off the chart. Delicious. It's all that matters. It's yeah. the only reason we got Ellen Zentner here. She's eating uh, very healthily. With Morgan out. Stanley. Ellen. I'm powered by bacon. <laughs> when you talk to Mr. Gorman of Morgan Stanley or Mr. Uh, Redeker of your foreign exchange shop, how do you dovetail in a subpar GDP vector with Hans Redeker's call for a strong dollar policy from the Trump? Well, I think a strong dollar call, you know, dampens growth. So it's a tempering How factor. Uh, so for every 10% sustained increase in the trade weighted dollar, it can dampen GDP growth by about half a percentage point. Um, and so I think what, what might be missed in some of the more lofty forecasts in a post-Trump world is that those forecasts should also be accompanied by a stronger dollar, which dampens overall business investment to some extent and dampens uh, uh, inflation to some extent as well, or limits the upside, let's say. And so I, I, I think that that is missed, uh, at least in some of the more lofty forecasts I see in a post-Trump world. But it plays very importantly into our post-Trump forecasts. What does the uh, the U.S. consumer look like to you right now? Here we are nearing the holidays. Tom is heading out afterward to buy his uh, his satchel of gifts. I'm uh, buying the entire Avril Lavigne catalog in support of Nickelback. He's going all Canadian. There's, I'm all Canadian today. <laughs> wow, that's great. More power <laughs> to you, Tom. My own stocking stuffer. Everything Wonderful. Avril Lavigne ever done. A, a, a swipe of a swipe it. of the uh, finger on Amazon, and you're done. You're there. Yeah. I'm it. sure they're on, they're on deep, deep discount. Anyhow, but no, how I is think, the U.S. consumer? I think what we've seen with the U.S. consumer, especially this holiday season, is that they are buying more, but at deeper discounts. Mm -hmm. And so, in nominal terms, sales are okay. Right. And then, of course, you know, you, you have to differentiate between big box retailers that continue to lose share um, to companies like Amazon, the, the Internet retailers. I think overall, um, it continues to be a cautious consumer. Some of that is driven by the growing share of the population that is aging and moving into the age cohorts associated with lower rates of spending. Um, but overall, in terms of the household balance sheet, I'm encouraged. It's unprecedented. You know, one of the worries is 
when interest rates start rising more quickly, uh, what does that do to the household balance sheet? Um, and very little of it is exposed to a variable rate. And that's good news. Mm -hmm. It means that as interest rates rise, the interest expense on the balance sheet does not eat into disposable income in a way that it has in the past. And that can stretch mm -hmm. the consumer cycle longer because they have more cushion to absorb a faster economy with higher interest rates or absorb a softening of the economy. Is, is, is financial repression over with all the enthusiasm we're seeing here at the Pierre Hotel four blocks down? Folks, we're four blocks north of the Trump Tower. We're just out of reach of the insanity. <laughs> well, I think that, that uh, one thing that helps, um, but it's, it's a precarious, it can be a precarious situation, right? One thing that helps is that as stock markets rise, um, that's higher net worth, higher financial net worth specifically. And if you think about the upper income household in the U.S., um, the top 20% income quintile represents 40% of all consumer spending, and you can pretty much tie everything that they do to asset prices, to the stock market. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that, that we're able to extend those gains or hold on to those gains, that could be a boost to consumer spending in 2017. But when I say precarious, mm. I mean something has to be delivered. Right for markets to hang on to these gains because the gains are built on hope, with nothing being delivered yet. How long does that hope last? How much time does does Congress, or does the president-elect have to affect something? Well, now markets are like a two-year-old, right? They want everything like yesterday. Um, now Congress can hit the ground running on January third. There is a an eight-year pent-up demand for a conservative Republican agenda um, that they want to deliver. And they don't have to wait for uh, Donald Trump to uh, be inaugurated on January right. 20th. They can hit the ground running, and that can at least move the, the rhetoric forward um, and show that they're moving in the right direction. Um, you know, the, the fact that midterm elections, you know, Politicians start to shut down in the fall of 2017 to get ready for the 2018 midterm elections. So that is good news because it pushes the timeline up even further to try and get things done as quickly as possible. Sure. You don't want to lose this opportunity of having a Republican sweep with a Republican president, uh, you know, if you're a Republican in Congress, because it doesn't come around that often. Uh, and so there are some powerful incentives for things to get done. The, the risk there is if things just simply don't move fast enough right off the bat for markets and there okay. starts to become doubt. <clears throat> do, do, Ellen, do your hands like Mr. Trump does when he's certain of what he's talking. There you go. Ellen's got the Trump, you know, <laughs> the fingers up in the air and the this round is This is the symbol going. for bread and drink, so <laughs> I know which side right. my glass and That's my good. bread plate is on That's at the good. tables. Yeah. Give me your confidence, your Trump certitude on the strength of the American consumer, given your subpar GDP call. So I think... I think that the American consumer is strong, but let's talk about what a strong American consumer looks like. It's not 3 to 4% spending, which was debt-fueled spending prior to the financial crisis that was also fueled by a lot of equity withdrawal from homes. You know, you take off that layer, and a, a strong consumer is a 2% growth rate. Now, we've been running above that, and we ran above that in 2016 and 2015 because a lot of that was fueled by falling gas prices. Moving into 2017, though, gas prices are not falling below their 2016 levels, and that's going to be a headwind to households, mm -hmm. um, believe it or not. But but I'm, I've been constructive on the consumer for a long time. I remain constructive on the consumer, um, and, I, and I like sort of 
where our um, chief U.S. equity strategist, Adam Parker, is positioned for the consumer going into 2017. Well, liking credit cards because it's not a retail-specific play, but it's a play on households becoming more confident, more income. You know, the, the tax breaks coming through, tax cuts coming through. That fuels credit demand. Um, and so credit cards, I like his overweight on credit cards. Um, when we look at where tax dollars are spent, um, think about stretching out the consumer durable goods cycle longer. People, you know, Tom and I talked about this earlier on, on uh, surveillance, um, that uh, new autos um, tend to garner those tax mm-hmm. dollars. Uh, and so that stretches out that cycle longer because we've seen auto sales slowing. You know, so perhaps this stems that slowing. Um, furniture and home furnishings is also a category that gets the benefit of tax dollars. You know, so so um, our, our strategists are, are overweight specific home builders um, and and home improvement. How does housing look to you right now? Housing looks more mid cycle. Okay. Um, I mean, part of the you know we've been belly aching over the lack of a more robust recovery in housing for a long time, and much of that is the the onerous regulatory overlay. Um, But the good news there is that we're far from overheating. And overheating at the end of the day is really what ends a business expansion. Um, And so the fact that we look more mid-cycle in housing is encouraging. And by 2018, Mm -hmm. if home price growth continues along this track, we will have finally whittled away negative equity. And that's been a big impediment to middle-income households. Uh, Mohammed Alarian just uh, emailed in and says, good morning to Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. Dr. Alarian's acclaimed phrase is those unknown unknowns. What's your unknown unknown for 2017? I think it's on what happens on trade. On How trade. far you do they want to push before. trade? Yeah, because I, I think that, that the... Is this um, a zero-sum presidency? Are we going to a, neo-mercant- a neo-mercantilist America? You know, I think that uh, I think through um, dynamic, for, dynamic estimation, uh, and there's another jargon alert for you, um, I think it, it gives the more conservative <clears throat> Republicans cover in order to vote through some stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't think it's, a, okay. it's a, a zero-sum game. But, of course, trade policy can make it a zero-sum game. Alan Zettner of Morgan Stanley, thank you so much. Have a great holiday. Remind me what Mr. Zuckerberg said today. You know, I, what did he say? He, he like, took off against Nickelback. Oh. Just, like, Money Bought is my favorite song <laughs> off Silver Side Up. But this is a song we all remember from 14 we years remember, ago. Yes. David, this is a band from Canada. Uh-huh. North, Mr. North Avril Lavigne is like the lead singer. Go. <laughs> Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Someone that is so valuable to speak to on America's economic pulse is Diane Swank. She has a huge advantage of not being on the island of Manhattan. (laughs) She has a far more, uh, a far and better perspective than many. Diane Swank of DS Economics. Good morning, Diane. Good morning. 3.5% 
Is that sustainable? Ellen Zentner was on earlier with a cautious Morgan Stanley uh, view. Are, are you living in the land of a Trump 3% economy, or do you, too, need to be cautious? Um, I'm cautious. I think we're going to get a little below 2% on the uh, fourth quarter after that 3.5%. That will bring the year up a little higher, but we're still talking about a one six one seven year, which is one of the slowest performing years of the expansion. So this is not anything to you know write home about. The good news is we re- did regain momentum after almost coming to a standstill in the first half of the year. So yeah. and really the consumer was behind that. So I think that's the good part is we've got some momentum, and even though it's a little Rocky momentum. We do have momentum carrying us, regardless of policy, good, bad, or indifferent, yeah. at least at the start of the year to get us into the start of the year. Fold in auto sales dynamics mm-hmm. into our subpar year. I remember the effervescence of 18 million units. Did autos let us down towards a sub 2% statistic? You know, yeah, autos are peaking out. That's a key issue. There's a couple things going on in the auto sector. We've got, um, they have been issuing subprime credit for a long time. They got a waiver after the crisis that helped to juice sales for quite a while. But let's face it, there's a payback to giving lower quality credit, and some of it's going bad now. It's one of the sectors that certainly regulators are watching very closely in terms of um, how these sales, these loans are performing. They went out to seven, eight years on these loans. It was really, you know, a long time. And the auto itself, the vehicles themselves, or trucks, um, whether they be light trucks or autos, were actually underwater very quickly on these loans. So that's one issue. And we've really kind of tapped already, you know, a very large pool of people replacing vehicles. So the vehicle sector um, also with uh, import, with, um, I'm sorry, used vehicle prices falling, that, remember, raises the price for anyone buying a car then because their trading value is going down. And they've been also offering incredibly deep discounts and incentives to, you know, we've just gotten very well trained. We wait them out. It's a game of chicken, both in, you know, the holiday sales and when you're buying a vehicle. Diane, do you, do you look at these data differently because of the presidential changeover we're going to have here uh, in January, the prospect of, of a new policy, the prospect perhaps of uh, a great change in Washington, D.C. How do you how do you read these data given that? Well, what we do know is that we had momentum going into 2017. And, you know, even if no policy, unlike what the stock market had been betting, only pro-growth policies, they sort of delineated between the spectrum of what could happen on November 9th as um, President-elect Trump accepted his acceptance speech. He talked about pro-growth and unity, and he played down some of the more damaging trade policies, immigration policies. We're now at population growth, the lowest since the Depression. We've got household formation slowing yesterday. We saw the data and news on, you know, record-breaking 40% of young adults are living with their parents. That, without immigration, means slower growth going forward. But at least we were set up in the year to look better no matter what, because we had gotten rid of some of our excess baggage that we carried into 2016, and that was really an overhang of inventories. And most notably, the oil bust. That was already healing. The oil industry, which had been a silver lining in that investment sector, in capital goods, has been coming back. And you're starting to now see that. How big a a driver is energy going to be here uh, going into 2017? That's a great question. I mean, it was an extraordinary driver when we had $100 per barrel oil. We were competitive at 40 to 50 before the presidency, the, um, the election, and now that is one of the few places. Deregulation, I think the market's overbetting on how quickly it can ease up and create profits in the financial services sector. But on the flip side, deregulation in the energy sector can happen fairly quickly, and um, we, they're already competitive. So that will be a – I think we're going to see outsized gains again in investment 
investment. Of course, outsized gains after having major contraction, that's very, um, you know, it's a big turnaround. So it will contribute a lot next year. That said, it's still not very broad-based. It's still one sector, doesn't employ many people. The oil industry is very important for a couple key states, but it's not broad-based throughout the economy that we need. Joining us now, uh, without question, one of our most interesting uh, guests, George Friedman, um, has issued his 2017 view, which links foreign policy in the military and into strategic uh, risk uh, as well. George Friedman is chairman and founder of Geopolitical Futures. And David, why don't you start us off here on that nexus of America's projection abroad? Yeah, you know, we've, we've seen this play out here since the election, the, the contours of Donald Trump's foreign policy beginning to take, sh- take shape, worrisome to, to some people here, George. Uh, when, when you look at what's going to be the overarching issue uh, in 2017, is it uh, an extension of the populism we've seen here in 2017? Well, it's certainly going to be an extension of uh, opposition to extreme internationalism. Yes. Look, since World War II, we've had a basic fundamental belief, which is that fixed alliances and free trade are the foundation of American policy. We've seen that the alliance like NATO doesn't work extremely well. The, our partners don't participate as they should. And we've also seen that uh, we've been involved in wars all over the world for 15 years that haven't ended well. In terms of free trade, GDP may grow, but it's not well distributed. So you've got a worldwide rising against uh, internationalism and reasserting the national interest and even class interest. Uh- Madame Lagarde, the, the head of the IMF, was at Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago, and she spoke about her worry about uh, deglobalization, that happening. What's the, the status of, what's the, 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 the health of globalization at this point? Do we see a pause on the movement toward more globalization? Well, since 2008, we've seen a phenomenon. You know, inter- interdependence is a wonderful thing until it isn't. So in 2008, we saw a virus, a fairly moderate bubble in the United States, infect the entire world. And eight years later, the world is still staggering from the consequences of that. So the question is, how do you limit viruses from spreading? How do you keep um, dysfunctions in some markets from creating long-term crises? So certainly the idea that unlimited interdependence uh, is good for everybody uh, was disproven. And she, IMF, is the champion of increasing interdependence, and that seems to, you know, just pyramid the risks. We focus a lot on how the U.S. would fare if policy does turn more inward, uh, and you highlight this in your, in your fine report here, the degree to which there are some countries that would do better than others if, if there was more inwardness, if there was uh, less of a globalized world. What are some others here that are wrestling with this and, and trying to weigh what the prospects of, of less globalization would be? Well, I mean, for Europe, for example. Yeah. Uh, it's been eight years since the failures of 2008. Southern Europe is in a state of depression, partly because Germany is a desperate exporter. Fifty percent of the German GDP derives from exports. Uh, these countries are staggering under the load of a euro uh, basically designed to serve Germany. 
And so increased inwardness in Southern Europe seems to be the only logical way to try to recover. They have been in depression for eight years with unemployment rates over 20%. You have a single sentence, George, in your report on Russia and their projection of military might with great fanfare. Is it for real, or did you capture it perfectly that it's all bluff, image, and bluster? Which is it? Syria is, has no strategic importance for Russia. But it was a wonderful place to make a large impact with a relatively small force. The Russians sent a little over 100 aircraft into the region. We have far more than that. They carried out attacks, and it made it appear that they were decisive. Well, they've been there quite a while, and they're still struggling to capture Aleppo. But that's not the point. They managed to elevate themselves to a peer of the United States at a time when their economy is staggering and when their loss of the Ukraine has never been reversed. So this is a weak country carrying out a brilliant bluff. To what extent are, are we culpable in that? Is the U.S. culpable in its elevation? We're all culpable in everything. Yeah. Uh, the United States uh, wants to have very nice outcomes. It doesn't have the military means to impose them. It wants to carry out attacks in Mosul without civilian attacks, uh, civilian deaths. Uh, the United States, for quite a while, has been carrying out a fantasy foreign policy. But the difference is that unlike uh, the Russians, the United States is almost 25% of the world's economy and really does have a global military force, however badly it may have been used. The Russians really, in objective terms mm -hmm. of power projection, just aren't there. No. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. And good morning. I'm Karen Moscow, along with Tom Keen and David Gura. And the opening bell is brought to you by SEI. Have evolving investor and regulatory demands affected your investment firm's operational readiness? Imagine transforming your business with SEI's global platform at SEIC.com slash imagine. Stocks are little change to lower at the open. The S&P 500 down a tenth of a percent or two points to 2262. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down eight to 19,929. And the NASDAQ is little changed at 54.70. Ten-year Treasury down 7.30 seconds. The yield 2.56%. The yield on the two-year 1.20%. NYMEX crude oil up half percent or 26 cents to 52.74 a barrel. COMEX gold is down two tenths percent or $2.40 to 11.30.90 an ounce. The euro $1.0458 and the yen 117.69. Tom and David. Karen, thanks so much. A power breakfast at the uh, Pierre Hotel. On Fifth Avenue, New York, it is a lovely, lovely place for David Gurr and I to be. And I, I got a rounding criticism on Twitter. I was migrating to the weekend, and I said Friday morning. Feels I like believe it. it's Thursday. Your enthusiasm for a, the holiday, perhaps. It, is a, it could be, perhaps. <laughs> it is a surveillance correction. James Steele of HSBC out on gold, he reaffirms support on gold, 1120 to $1,100 per ounce. Uh, he believes those levels will hold, barring significant dollar strength. Why don't you bring us back with George Yeah, George Friedman. Friedman here. He is the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures. And George, we were talking about Russia a moment ago and the degree to which that country has been elevated to a peer status here uh, with the U.S. Give us your sense of how that relationship 
changes is if at all here in the new year. Uh, we have President-elect Donald Trump picking Rex Tillerson to be Secretary of State and making uh, a lot for better or worse of the fact that he has had a good relationship uh, with the Russian leadership. Do you see the relationship changing here in 2017? Well, we have a basic agreement already on Ukraine. It's a frozen conflict. Uh, it, government is pro-Western. Uh, the Russians are holding their position. That could be formalized. But look, the real Russian problem is the economy. It cannot survive very well with oil prices at this. And the United States can't do anything about it. So the issue is not whether they like each other or don't like each other. The issue is what is the underlying problem facing each country the American problem really is disengaging from the Middle East. The Russian problem is maintaining their economy. They're relevant to each other. So they can threaten each other and steal emails and things like that. But the fundamental questions uh, don't turn around personalities. You know, I, I'm looking at your note here, looking at your outlook for the new year, and uh, a word stuck out, stood out to me. Uh, you're talking about China and the uh, President Xi Jinping. You, you call it a dictatorship, uh, pulling no punches there. Uh, we talk about the U.S.-Russia uh, relationship going forward. How about the U.S.-China relationship? What are the, the next turns there? We, we saw the incident last week. Uh, we can debate the significance of it, the gra gravity of it uh, in the South China Sea. How does that relationship change here going forward? Well, the Chinese are still dependent on exports, and the American market is desperately important to them. Uh, China is much less important to the United States. We can substitute for most of the things that they export to us, including rare earths. So the Chinese have the weak hand. They're the sellers. We're the buyers. And for all of their posturing, you know, that is the economic truth. The military truth is they don't have an amphibious capability able, for example, to invade Taiwan. They have some ships, but they don't have the air power. They don't have the ability to block U.S. missiles coming into their ships. And they only have two brigades of Marines. Uh, and the Taiwanese have ten divisions. So there are a lot of things that the media talks about that they just can't do. But they're very good at making it appear that they're more powerful than they are. George, on the time we've got left with you, what we talk about in economics is a zero-sum trade, a zero-sum international economics, and some would use the phrase neo-mercantilism. The Pentagon has to deal with a new president who, by all interviews we do, seems to be very transactional and very deal-making. Is your world so immense that it literally is immune from a given president and immune from a new president? Or is the Pentagon actually thinking about how they're going to adapt to a zero-sum zeitgeist from a new president? The Pentagon is built for certain types of wars, certain types of military operations. It is a vast enterprise. Presidents hold office for four years, sometimes eight. The president's ability to reshape you know, these vast institutions and make them different is limited. So, every, you know, the difference in foreign policy and reality is vast. Policy is what you wish you could do. Reality is what you encounter. Obama realized this. He had wanted to have a completely different presidency. Uh, didn't happen. George W. Bush would never have believed that his presidency was going to be a war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> reality makes a president, not the president making reality. Okay. okay, there's a famous point where Woodrow Wilson is sitting there and somebody waltzes into the room and whispers in his ear and he changes policy 180 <laughs> degrees in about six seconds. 
Can you fathom a President Trump being Wilsonian and being supple and amenable to policy change? I think all presidents are supple in making policies. Now, the question is, does it really change anything? So let's assume that he has decided, and it would be a reasonable thing, that he is going to withdraw from the Middle East. You know, he's spoken about that in various times and other things. Uh, how long does it take to do that? How complex can it be? Uh, how do you mitigate the consequences? So the problem I have with all the focus on policy, it's like a focus on wishes. Uh, I'm not sure of the event you're talking about with Wilson changing the policy, but I would love to see whether it had any consequence. On small things, sure. I mean, on small things, uh, it's easy to change. But on the basic structure of U.S. foreign policy, uh, as Franklin Roosevelt discovered before World War II, it took years to get this country ready for a change in policy and to build a military. Does Mr. Trump face that in a day of modern uh, communication and tweeting? Does he uh, face the same uh, constraints as FDR? Well, he faces real constraints, and it's the Republicans in the Senate. Uh, the Republicans in the Senate are most concerned about re- being reelected. Trump won by a very narrow minority, actually. And they're asking the question, am I better off supporting Trump or opposing Trump to be reelected? Remember, mainstream Republicans don't like him. So far more important than uh, Twitter is the same problem that Woodrow Wilson had. He wanted the League of Nations. The Senate didn't. He didn't get it. Always remember that the president is not is probably the weakest leader of the Euro-American world. He has the least direct power. Almost everything he wants to do has to go through Congress. And he's going to have to build some sort of relationship with Congress. Otherwise, he's just making speeches. George, very quickly here, about 30 seconds left with you. Unfortunately, too little time. Um, what is the, the dose, the first dose of realism Donald Trump is going to get when he's in office? What's the, what's the first flashpoint you think he's going to see? Well, the first flashpoint he's going to see is that he's going to have to deal uh, with the Middle East issue. We've been at war for 15 years. He's attacked our policy. He has to find a different one. And as far as difficulty is going to be, the Congress is not going to necessarily agree with him, and that there are prices for everything that he wants to do. Uh, he has a range of things that he wants to do. None of them are easy to do. And his staff is new, and they have to learn how to do things. It takes a long time for the presidential staff to settle down and do things. But most importantly, what he's going to face is that for everything he wanted to do, there's a price. And the price is going to hurt some mm. Americans and undercut them. Uh, George Friedman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with this uh, year ahead uh, review. <laughs> Maybe, David, we ought to talk to somebody who maybe worked with Carlos Gutierrez, who maybe didn't want a wall across Mexico, or maybe worked with powerful senators who looked at President A, B, C, D, or Trump and said, really, who would that person be that we should talk to? You're talking about Ron Bonjean of the Bonjean Company joining us now by phone. And there is so much political news uh, to talk about, Tom. We've been remiss not talking about it. Uh, yet I want to get to all of that. We can talk about immigration policy and national security policy and all of that. But first, let me start with politics. Politics. And the news releases that we've gotten here over the last couple of days, uh, President-elect Donald Trump naming Carl Icahn special advisor to the president. He'll be handling uh, regulatory 
Affairs. Ron, great to speak with you. And let me ask you about the sentence at the end of that email announcement. Carl Icahn will be advising the president in his individual capacity and will not be serving as a federal employee or a special government employee and will not have specific duties. A two-part question here. What is Carl Icahn going to be doing? Uh, And is he somebody who could not have been confirmed? Well, it looks like he's going to be uh, examining the um, regulations that uh, President Trump said he wanted to remove at least 90% of them that affected American jobs. So he's going to be looking at that with a microscope uh, and, and making recommendations to the White House on which regulations should go into the trash can. Now, he's also reportedly um, an advisor interviewing potential uh, nominees or, or selections for uh, SEC chair. And um, that is, that's definitely an unconventional role. It's something, but Trump trusts him. He has done deals with him in the past um, and is looking to him for advice. So, I mean, he is, I, I don't know if Carl Icahn wanted to actually serve mm. in the cabinet, um, but uh, he would definitely receive some scrutiny if he was uh, under the microscope uh, during Senate confirmation by Democrats. Ron, you've been in Washington a, a long time. I know that uh, the, the transition team has shied away from using the, the term swamp now. They're moving on to, to other uh, soaring rhetoric. Uh, but let me ask you here just about uh, what Diane Swank brought up with here, us here a couple hours ago. She said that, uh, you know, it, 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 it is a skill to know how to navigate Washington. You bring in a special counselor who is not of Washington. How big of a problem uh, is that? Is, is this administration beginning to reckon yet with the fact that uh, the bureaucracy is Byzantine, and, and you may need a guide to get around it. Well, I think that they have a combination of insider and outsiders uh, that are beginning to populate the White House and the Cabinet. Um, you know, the voters sent him, sent Trump to Washington to take a wrecking ball to the place, and a lot of the secretaries being named, you know, are going to, uh, clean, you know, are going to turn, up, turn those Cabinet agencies upside down. Um, and while you do need to have a good sense of how Washington works to understand the levers of power at the same time, they don't want they also want some yeah. fresh fresh faces from the outside coming in to, to shake things up. Ron, but I particularly go to your service to Senator Lott, Trent Lott. Tell me here what the body language and day to day tactical response will be of Senate leadership. Every interview we do says they're the focal point. Can he right. be an executive president, or does he actually have to get along with the Trent Lots of 2018? Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, you know, the fact that Republicans don't have 60 votes in the Senate means that um, there is going to need to be some compromises, and the Senate is really the backstop, the backlog where everything's going to start piling up. So Trump is going to need those guys. I think also, though, the Republican majority owes its majority to Donald Trump. Um, in a number of those states, like, you know, like Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, for example, um, where everyone thought he was going to lose. So I think at least for the first 100 days, you're going to see everyone trying to get along as much as possible. And, um, uh, and, and, I, and I, but, you know, like any relationship, it's going to have some turbulence, uh, an unexpected turbulence over the next couple of years. Ron, I'm wondering the degree to which Donald Trump's election has changed the way politics gets done in Washington uh, already. There's word here that uh, Kellyanne Conway is going to be moving to town to be a, a counselor to the president. You're getting a new neighbor, the, 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 the Bonjean Company getting a new neighbor. Corey Lewandowski trading New Hampshire for Washington, D.C. He's planning to set up a, a lobbying shop uh, a block away uh, from the White House. 
Have other politicians taken note? In other words, is, is the brand of politics that Donald Trump espouses something that other politicians are going to try uh, to take on as their own? Well, you know, it's, it's just that's a really good question because Donald Trump is really the bottle that captured lightning in the bottle on populism. Uh, now, uh, you know, you had Bernie Sanders on the left, who was extremely popular, too. Um, so there are possibilities that politicians will emerge out of nowhere trying to reflect the Trump brand. He is, though, a force du jour. It's hard to see how someone could replicate it, but you could potentially see people understanding that there's a new way to campaign and that people are just so fed up with, right. with complete, you know, with, with, with the package they've been seeing over the last, you know, 20 years. Ron, greatly appreciate the perspective. Somehow I think we'll be talking to you as we stagger to January at 20th. Ron Bonjean, working with selected Republicans over the many years uh, from uh, Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.